So I've titled the sermon, What Do We Do With Unfulfilled Longings? Last week, I spoke about this idea of unfulfilled longings. And the reason that I titled this sermon that and spoke about it last week is it is my belief that God has given us desires and he has given us longings in this life. Some of them he'll meet as we pray for them to be met. But what I'm learning, and maybe you too, is that some of them go unmet, at least on the surface it seems that way. And it is sometimes in those unfulfilled longings that he's doing the deepest work, that he is waiting for us to see that it is him really, that is the greatest treasure and not being necessarily rescued from our situations or circumstances. But in the, in the unfulfilled longings, we run to him and we get on our face and we cry out, I pray we do, God, be with me, help me, let me see you because you are the one that will sustain me in these unfulfilled longings. And so when you read our text, or as David read our text today, that doesn't show up on the surface. I want to show you that that is underneath. It's almost like uh, most of us have uh, a computer, and we know that when, you know, in the 80s, if you'd have got on a computer, you would have seen typing on there that you would have probably went, I don't understand what that is, or it's not very clear. But now, it's user-friendly, and there's a new operating system, and the operating system is pretty easy to use. But still, behind that operating system, there is a programmer and a person that has made that possible. I think our text is a lot like that today. There's some things that are happening on the surface that are kind of easy to see, but there's some things that are deeper going on behind that that I want you to see. And so, if you just do a, a 30,000 foot flyover of what David read in our text today, John 8, 31 through 47, you heard things uh, that were interesting. Like, there's really a nasty exchange going on here between the Jewish leaders and Jesus. And here's some of the things that come out of that. It's almost like a hockey fight where um, they throw the gloves off and it's time to go. And this is what we're getting to in the Gospel of John is it's getting nasty now and there's some words being thrown back and forth and exchanges that are hard. But before we do the flyover and, and talk about some of the hard things that Jesus is saying, there are many outside the church and even inside the church that say that John 8 is so harsh that it's anti-Semitic, that it's racist towards the Jews, and that it even shouldn't be in the Scripture. I personally believe that John 8 is not necessarily just geared towards the Jewish people. I think it's geared towards all of us, and that it was being used as an example for all of us. And so I don't believe that, that, that it's anti-Semitic at all. I just happen to believe that it was the Jewish leaders that he was speaking to 
when he said all of this. So here are some things though, that you would hear. Um, in a flyover, Jesus is telling them their father, this is the Jewish nation, Israel, is the devil. Now that's kind of harsh for a people who have grown up believing they are the direct line of Abraham and, the, and God's special people. He says that they are not really Abraham's descendants. He says, you're blind and you're deaf and you don't hear the truth because you can't hear the truth. Your father is the devil. He tells them, you're slaves and you're not going to remain in my father's house forever. And what he's saying there is it's in, in essence, Jesus um, is the son, and in Hebrews 3, it talks about the house of God, and he's going to remove them from the house of God. Jesus says he is from God. They can't hear his words because they are not from God. So you can see this is not easy stuff for them. These are harsh words. And really what Jesus is doing is he's holding up a mirror. You ever have one of those mornings where you step in front of the mirror and maybe it was a particularly bad night of sleep and you look in the mirror and you go, whoa, that is not pretty. Um, that is what Jesus is doing. He is holding up this mirror for them to see their sin. But then also, I think he's not just holding up a mirror for them to see their sin. He's tapping and he's probing this unfulfilled desire in them. And I'm going to get to that in just a minute. Our world, as you know and I know, is filled with trouble and pain and with the inevitable reality of death and the afterlife. And you got to remember, in this time, these people saw death. It was all around them all the time. In America today, we almost have a way of, of moving the dying away so that we don't see it very often. But they saw it all the time. We seek for comfort, stability, a positive outlook on the future, a sense of purpose after life and death. And also, though we may not be always conscious of it, we yearn to ease the crushing burden of sin that dominates this life. The Word of God gives ample instruction on the foolishness of seeking a false security in the wrong things. And see, what's really going on here with the, with the Jewish leaders is they have been taught decade after decade, century after century, a Messiah is coming. And the Messiah that's coming, in their mind, they begin to take on a view and an understanding of what that Messiah is going to look like. He's going to come, and he is going to be a deliverer. And what I mean by deliverer is he's going to deliver them from their hard life circumstances. They've been enslaved. They've been made to be slaves. They've persevered through all of this, but they're waiting for this Messiah that is to come that's going to deliver them. And it's interesting 
because in God's economy, all that was written back here in the Old Testament, bringing them to the place of deliverance and the Messiah that was to come, they've misread. It. They've misread. They've misunderstood. And so as they are looking for this deliverer, when he actually shows up, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. And so they do not see him for who he is. There's an idea, an expectation among the Jewish people that he's going to reign in this life set up a kingdom in this life, and deliver them from all their hardship. I want to make a quick comparison to us. I think that when we come to Christ, or as we are walking with Christ, when we uh, encounter wayward children, or a loss of a job, or a diagnosis that is unfavorable and hard, sometimes I think that we, like the Jewish nation, believe that God is going to do this miraculous delivery. And it's interesting, if you just read the Old Testament, you don't see any of the Israelites ever complaining about the parting of the Red Sea. You know why they don't complain about the parting of the Red Sea? They were delivered. They got in the moment, in this life, exactly what they needed at that time. But here's something that's interesting. God was always, all through that time, giving them sustaining grace for every day. You know how he was doing it? He was raining down miraculously manna from heaven. He was feeding them Every day, all the time, manna from heaven. And what do they do? Complain. Because the daily sustenance, the daily provision wasn't enough for them. They wanted miraculous deliverance. And God was saying, no, perhaps the daily grace that I'm giving you will make you lean more into me and you'll get more of me, and you'll experience more of me than if I just miraculously deliver you. Grace, in that way, does so much more in our lives than this miraculous deliverance. And you see, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel here, they were looking for the deliverance, and the Messiah didn't add up for them. Maybe the Messiah doesn't add up for you in some ways. One of the ways we can know this is Jesus is telling them, if you're free in the Son, you will be free indeed. But for us in our generation, it seems that a lot of times we run after other things to kind of give us the freedom or the security that we want. One of those examples would be wealth and possessions. Matthew 6, 19 through 21 says this, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on heaven, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy. 
I should have, I quoted that wrong. And where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Another way that we run after the security in this world is through power. We think it'll bring us a sense of stability. But Psalm 37, 35, and 36 says, I've seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree. But he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Another way that we look for our unmet longings to be fulfilled is social standing and prestige. In Matthew 23, 26, Jesus says, You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. So here in our text, the Jews weren't looking necessarily to power. They weren't looking necessarily to uh, the uh, possessions and wealth. But I do think it was connected to prestige and position. And so the Jews here are finding their hope in their family heritage. By being Abraham's descendants... And Jesus is warning them to place their hope in him, and they will be free indeed. What about you? Where do you run to find that stability in your life? Where are you running to find the security in your life or the freedom? What are the things that you're looking to the Bible says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now, look with me at our text in John 8, 33. Look there at John 8, 33. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have been enslaved and, ha and have never been enslaved, excuse me, to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So, these Jewish leaders are saying, we're offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. Now, when I read that in my study, I'm like, surely they know their history. You know, Israelite was enslaved to a lot of people. Matter of fact, just for clarity, they were enslaved to Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, all before they made that statement. They had to have known that. So what were they saying? They were saying, in a spiritual way, because of our lineage, inwardly, we have freedom. That's, I think, what they were saying here. But, and in, in look, at, look at John 8, 36, and look at what Jesus tells them. He says... They've said, we're free. And he says, no. Nah. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, why would he at this point say, if the Son sets you free, you will be free? The reason he said it that way is because they're banking on their connection to Abraham and God the Father being the one that is going to set them free. So what Jesus is doing is he's picking a scab. 
He's picking a fight again, and he's saying, no, only if the Son sets you free, you'll be free. You think it's because Abraham and your connection to Abraham and your connection to Abraham and the Father, but I'm saying, I'm saying, I'm God. I'm God. If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. In verse 36, he's really repeating verse 32, but he's declaring that he is the Son of God and that the Son has authority over God's house, that Jesus has authority to release them who put their faith in him from the bondage of sin and make them sons of God. Jesus is saying, it is not just God the Father and your connection to him, it's me, I'm him. Jesus is claiming right here to be the one that can cancel their sin problem. Romans 6.18 says, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Isn't that interesting? You're a slave to sin before you're a Christian, and then when you become a Christian, the Bible says you're now a slave to righteousness. And then in Romans 8, 2, it says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There's two laws working there. There is the law of sin and death that is in the world. That law is at play. And then there is the law of the spirit of life that can set us free in Christ Jesus. So this week, I traveled on uh, Monday morning early to Warner Robins, Georgia. And I went there for the uh, Georgia Baptist Convention. On Tuesday, I was having issues with my truck, and uh, the dashboard looks like Christmas, got lights everywhere shining, and I took it over to the Toyota dealer, and, uh, and I left it with them, and I had a courier take me from uh, the Toyota dealer back over to the convention early in the morning, thinking they'll have all day to work on it, and so... It was a 24-year-old young man that drove me from the Toyota dealer over to the convention. And he was, he was talkative, and I found that he was pretty inquisitive. And we began to talk about politics, which is, not, I don't always engage in politics, especially with strangers. Um, but as we talked, we talked about some of society's harder problems. And I, I said, after a moment or two into the conversation, I said, you know, the local church could be God's distribution center if we thought better about poverty and so forth, because the churches are located in every community, if you see what I'm talking about. A distribution center, they set up and they send their supplies out to these stores and different things. But we have churches in every community. If churches were thinking rightly about poverty and, and the needs in their community, 
what a distribution center that could be. And you wouldn't need mass government-funded things. You could do it at the local level where people really knew what the needs were. Well, the point in all this is not politics. He said to me, yeah, I could see where that would help, but he said, uh, I'm an atheist. So I wouldn't go in that direction is what he said. I asked him at that point, I said, uh, I won't use his name. I'll call him Tim. I said, Tim, do you believe in a, in, that there's absolute truth in the world? And he thought about it for a minute, and he said, you know, I'm a math major. I do believe there's absolute truth. I asked if he was open to God existing outside of his finite understanding. See what I mean by that? Is if you're a human and you've got this little pea brain, which we all do, to say you're an atheist is one thing, but you've got to be intellectually honest and say God could exist out of what I don't know. There's so much that I don't know, being a human, God could exist outside of that. So that was my logic with him. And he insisted that he had landed that there was no God. He's 24 years old. I said, what about Jesus? Do you think he was a historical person in history? To that he said, yes, I think you have to admit Jesus was a historical person in history. And I said, well, do you think that Jesus was God or was he a good man? And he said, oh, I don't believe in God, so he was a good man. I said, Tim, I got you. He said, what do you mean you got me? I mean, you could tell he was almost unnerved. I said, that's the one thing you can't say about Jesus. He said, why can't I say he was a good man? I said, because do good men go around telling people they're God? No. He would be a liar or a lunatic on the level of a poached egg if he goes around telling people that he's God. So he can't be a good man. I said, so now what are you going to do with Jesus? He said, I've never thought about it like that. Um, I'm not real sure now how to answer your question. I said, well, there is a law at work in this world. That law is a law of sin and death and it, and it ends in punishment and hell. And he said, now that one I got you beat on. And I said, how do you got me beat on that? He said, I'm an annihilationist. I believe that when you die, you're just annihilated. And I said, literally. We're, it's a friendly conversation. And uh, I said, that's really convenient. <laughs> you know? And he said... Uh, it's, yeah, maybe it's convenient, but that's what I believe. And I said, now we're talking about something else. It's back to absolute truth. The question, Tim, is, is the Bible really the Word of God? Because the Bible says there is a law at work in this world that leads to sin and death and punishment and hell unless we trust in the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf and ask him into our heart and lives. 
And he said, well, I don't agree with that, and I don't believe that. And I said, you know what I was talking about about Jesus? I actually get that from somebody that's a lot smarter than me. He's written a book. His name is C.S. Lewis, and the book is Mere Christianity. I said, would you be open to me sending you that book so that you could read it for yourself? And he said, oh, man, you don't have to do that. And I said, no, I, I really want to do that. And he said, uh, man, I, I, I would love that. That would be great. I would love to read that book. So he came back and picked me up later. And as I got in the car, he said, I just wanted to reiterate to you, I've landed. I'm an atheist. <laughs> and I said, Tim, you're 24, man. I said, don't land and lock down. Wise people would explore and see if there might be more truth than what you think. And he said, all right, send me that book. So I'm going to send him that book. The word says, those who abide in the truth of Christ know the truth, and in our verse, the truth will set them free. Jesus says they are not free, but they do not see or feel their enslavement. That was the situation with this guy. The Jewish leaders also didn't see or feel enslavement. They said, we're not in slavery. We don't need your freedom. Everyone sins. Therefore, Jesus is saying that everyone is a slave to sin. Follow this. This means that sin is not just a bad act, but a power underneath in our hearts that makes us do bad things. We sin because we are sinners. We are not contrary to popular belief. And just go up there to the nursery and watch some of those children. We are not born good. We're born selfish. We're born sinners. And so Jesus is telling them their father is Satan. And that is why they can't hear him. And that is why they do evil and so forth. And you could imagine how angry that would make them. In 8, John 8, 34 and 35, look, look here with me. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So we know that Jesus, and in Hebrews it talks about the house. The son has the authority in that house. And he's saying, you Jewish leaders are like slaves serving the table, doing the things that I've had you doing. But eventually, you're no longer going to be in the house. It's just going to be the true sons of Abraham. And he's also saying practicing sin means that that's your normal mode of operation. <clears throat> You're not resisting sin. You're not fighting sin. You don't repent as a trend and believe and obey. And so Jesus is saying, it's like he's saying to the Jewish leaders, you're living on borrowed time here. 
You are living on borrowed time. A day is coming when you will not be in this house. So Jesus holds the mirror up to their soul and he shows them their sin. And in essence, he's rejecting. They had three claims. I'm going to hit them just boom, boom, boom. Their claims were they, they were Abraham's physical children. And Jesus basically tells them in John 8, 37 and 38, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because of my words. I speak of what I've seen with the Father, and you do what you've heard from your father. He's saying, your father is the devil because you practice sin. And the second claim uh, Jesus rebucks against them is they say, Abra- we, are, we are spiritual children. And if you look at John 8, 39 and 41, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Now, when I read that, my question was, why do they say right there, we were not born of sexual immorality? Do you know what they're doing? It's kind of a tit for tat. It's like Jesus is saying, you're not really from Abraham. God, the father, is not really your father. Your father is the devil. And they're saying, we know your story, Jesus. You were born out of sexual immorality. Where's your father? Our father's the real God. And that's why I said, this, is, this has gotten to a place where the gloves are off. And if you want to say it more frankly, they, they just called Jesus a bastard. And the reason is, is they're mad. And you know what they're mad about? Is underneath, now, this is getting to the longings, there is a deep desire in all of us for security. We want to know that if we die and when we die, we're going to go be in heaven. And Jesus is saying, when you die, you're going to hell. That's what he's telling them. And so they're saying, we don't, we don't believe you anyway. Who's your father? You were born out of sexual immorality. We're not, we're not, we're not believing this. And so they've tried to correct him. And then their final claim, they say, we're God's children. And if you look in John 8, 42 through 47, he says, We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. When I was riding in the car with that young man, It was really real. It was like he could not bear to hear me say, no, there is a law in this world that sin leads to death. And he would say, but that doesn't apply to me because I'm an atheist and I'm an annihilist 
I'm okay. But let me tell you guys, just beneath his eyeballs, just looking at him, he didn't believe that in the morning the man on the moon. I could tell there was this uncertainty, this insecurity. Am I right or is this man right? So I believe that God is speaking even when they try to say he's not. Here's, here's the other thing, though. The Jewish leaders believe that Jesus was going to do one thing for them. But in reality, Jesus was talking about another kingdom. They didn't get that. They didn't get that. So they set up their lives around the systems and the structures that they had built in the Jewish community and they believed that those systems and structures and the connection to Abraham meant eternal life for them. And Jesus was blowing that all up. And that made them deeply insecure. And it made them mad to the point that they would call him a bastard. Those who point to religious ancestry and tradition as their badges of religious security, like the Jewish people did, will actually find themselves usually in serious jeopardy. I'm going to close with an illustration and then make a point or two on it. Karl Barth, theologian, brilliant man, is no longer with us. He describes, and talking about this verse, he describes it like this. Follow with me on this. He says, um, it is the life of people who are, it is like the life of people who are headed on a long journey. And along the way, they find a sign pointing them westward. So we're along the way, and we, on this journey, we find this sign, and the sign basically is pointing us westward to where we're supposed to go. The signpost is there to convey to them that their destination, but instead, they stop and create a life for themselves under its painted words. They build a civilization there, celebrating the signpost and telling stories of how they arrived at the marker. Rituals evolve, songs are written, books are published, liturgies follow, but a few travel on in return, confirming that the signpost indeed led to the place promised. But the second and third generations have built a life around the signpost. And they have forgotten the meaning of the journey. The lure is built on stories of past travel, not on stories of arriving on the prophetic call to get on with the journey itself. I think what Karl Barth is after here is the signpost is referring to churches and religious institutions that our places of worship begin to take on a life of their own and we begin to make a life out of being under the signpost or the church and we miss the prophetic call of Jesus. 
Our churches, this church, must have a prophetic edge to it, calling us back to Jesus. The prophetic edge must push us out toward mission, toward making much of him and helping others see him as the greatest treasure that he is. When this prophetic or missional edge is missing, we, we become like those living under the signpost, telling stories and missing the main thing. We're in danger of being like the Jewish leaders here in John 8. Are Christians today that different than the Jewish leaders in John 8? Can our piety, our religious zeal become like life under the signpost? Can it be simply a recitation of ancestry and tradition, a defense of all that is holy, good, and spiritual, but in reality knows little of God himself? I think so. I think it's really easy to get there. For the church to be like life under the signpost. And the reason and the way that you see that that is happening is that you don't see people that are straining for holiness. People that are fighting for joy in God. People that are pushing themselves and running the race to know him in a way that maybe others don't. To fight to see Jesus for who he is. To put aside previous traditions and even maybe previous successes. Is to get out from under the signpost and to answer the prophetic call. Another way that we know, are we just living under the signpost and created a world there? Or are we really living this evangelistic, prophetic, missional edge is this. Have we created in our church a culture of evangelism? That should mark us. We should be talking with one another often and always about someone that we are engaging with over the gospel truth. Or do we just come on Sunday and kind of uh, measure Clint's sermon? Uh, was, man, that, was a, that was kind of an average one. Ah, that was a good one. That was a good one. See, it's not about me. It's about us. It's about us. Are we just living under the signpost? Or are we following the prophetic call to give our lives away, to live missionally. This life, I don't have to tell the older generation. One, two things. It ain't going to get any easier. They know that. And it's going to go by really fast. Really fast. 
Are you going to make your life count for all eternity? And if you're going to do that, you're going to have to be really, really deeply connected to God's Word. And you're going to have to live your life like there is truly a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And that means if you're not telling the people in your life about Christ on a regular basis, you might just be living under the signpost. And that can be really comfortable, and we can tell great stories, and that's really fun. But at the end, I think you're going to be crushed that you didn't tell people what God could do for them.